0: Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at criminalafpod, or click on the link in the episode description. In 2007, two men committed a home invasion in the quaint town of Cheshire, Connecticut. At first look, this appeared to be a random robbery that escalated into the murder of three people. But was this crime meticulously planned out with a more sinister intent? Find out in the Cheshire murders. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter, And this is Criminal as Fuck. good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal as Fuck. Once again, I am Dave Jari. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corder. How we doing? Uh, we have a couple of uh, criminals on our uh, Patreon this week. I don't know if we're uh, trying to think of a name for the fans. I don't know if criminals work. But...
1: I, I like it, but we'll, we'll, we'll brainstorm.
0: All right. Uh, shout out to Christine Rivera and Beth Davis. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Christine was a serial holic on Patreon back in the day. So thank you, Christine and Beth, for your support very much appreciated uh so go check out criminal af on patreon there's four tiers and you can donate as little as two dollars a month to help the podcast that's patreon.com backslash criminal af
1: and please go follow our socials instagram it's at criminal af pod uh on twitter it's at criminal af tiktok it's at criminal underscore af and if you're watching us at criminal af on youtube be sure to like subscribe and drop a comment so you know when our next videos drop
0: And for merch, you can go to criminalafpod.com and click on shop. Tons of great merch. Criminal as fuck and show your support. Oh, go get you some merch.
1: Yes sir. It's good too. It looks real nice. Uh, if you love what we're doing here, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your positive reviews will help bring awareness to the podcast and boost us in the rankings.
0: And to leave us a voice message, go to the Anchor app or click on the link in the episode description. Any questions we receive will be played and answered in our next episode. Uh, We actually received a message this week from our listener, Paul Breer, and we'll share it now. Hey, guys, really love the show. I think you are doing an awesome job. I look forward to watching more of them. Um,
1: The one that I watched, I'm just curious, you know, maybe you could take the stance of looking at it from the victim's parents' viewpoint. Had they not locked that door...
0: All right, so uh, the message actually cut off a little bit, but what I think you're asking is uh, with Leslie Mahaffey, her parents, like, why would they lock the door? You would never hear about that nowadays. No. In 2022. No no, shot. You know what I mean? No, Locking the door on their teenager. But if you're thinking about back in, like, the 80s and 90s, like, that was a very different time back then, you know? Tough love was pretty common back in the day. You know what I mean? So, I mean, if my parents, if I was... 14, 15, 16 years old, my parents said, hey, if you're not back by 10, 10 o'clock, I'm locking the door. Yeah, you can sleep outside. They're going to fucking lock the door. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? You Like, you make plans to, to, to go somewhere else. So I can understand Leslie's parents, you know, having that sort of, you know, tough love because Leslie, yeah, at the time, she was, you know, uh, pushing back on authority. Yep. She was trying to find her way, you know, do her own thing. So I totally get where... Her parents were coming from. Now, nowadays, th- see,
1: child protective services have been at their <laughs> yes, door exactly. within.
0: Right. So, but five I mean, minutes. her parents to this day. I don't know if they're still around or whatever. But I can tell you that if they're they're here today, they are regretting that decision. Oh. From the moment it happened, you know what I mean. So, but well, anyways, thank you for your message, Paul. I hope that we were able to answer it for you.
1: I uh, appreciate it too. Yeah. Thank you for.
0: Uh, I love this stuff. Yeah, it's great. I love hearing from everybody.
1: Okay, well, since today's episode is very dark, yeah. very tragic, and and it you know it has a special place in both of our hearts, mm-hmm. um, I think we're going to start off you know more lighthearted, get a little funny in uh, our new segment called uh, "Florida Man of the Day." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Florida Man of the Day, we're going to highlight insane criminals in Florida because this is a criminal as fuck podcast. is. We're not just going to focus on serial killers, murderers, you know, we're going to cover the whole spectrum. So why not give you a Florida man of the day because God, I, you know, just doing a little bit of a deep dive, the stories out of Florida. (laughs) An unidentified white male fled last month from a Florida adult novelty store with a $300 Jenna Jameson sex doll under his arm. Police report... The suspect walked up to the counter of the Inner Secrets shop in Vero Beach and asked Catherine Morris some questions about the doll. Sadly, an Indian River County Sheriff's Office report does not detail the nature of those inquiries about the product, which deputies incorrectly identified as a Jenna Jameson doll. Following the perp's question time, he grabbed the doll off the counter and ran out of the store. I thought this was hilarious because I said, could you imagine, right? The police, like At that point, all it's it's... The call comes in. Hey, theft from a store or whatever. Right. Uh, whatever car he left in, white Bronco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, white Bronco. Yeah. So right they pull him over. Hey, four how fast? How fast was it?
0: <laughs> did they speed away or uh, did they kind of? No, just, they just coasted. Just kind of just, just coasted.
1: Yeah. Wait, so. Imagine right this deputy who
0: pulls up. Right? Yeah.
1: Four five dispatch. I have a unidentified male and a female in the passenger seat. She's yeah. <laughs> got no arms, yeah. but four dispatch. I'm gonna go in and uh, pull him over. So he gets out, and then this man just
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> just sprints down the highway with a Jenna Jameson sex doll. <laughs> I just I thought it was hilarious. Oh my god oh. Oh. He was never caught by the way Never caught Nope no. so, so, so him and him and, James, <laughs> him and
0: Jenna lived, lived happily,
1: happily after. ever after
0: <laughs> Oh my god <laughs> oh, I can just see the guy running <laughs> down the road
1: Four-five to dispatch white male and a uh, female passenger
0: Alright Feet don't fail me now
1: <laughs> Hilarious
0: Alright I'd like to touch on a story real quick that has been coming across my timeline. And this one will either piss you off, make you want to vomit, or both. So, I just have to warn you, if the ingestion of body (laughs) fluids makes you queasy or uncomfortable, you might want to... uh, Mute now. Yeah. Either mute or skip ahead for a couple minutes. So, anyway, so... There's this lady, Cynthia Perkins, uh, she was a former, former school teacher in Louisiana. And uh, her husband, Dennis, is uh, a former special operations lieutenant with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. And the reason I say that they're both formers is because they were arrested back in 2019 for a slew of sex crimes. Cynthia was charged with like 70 of, of those crimes and her husband, was charged with 150. And uh, wait, wait, wait! 150. 150 charges. <sighs> Holy shit! All right, so it involves uh, child pornography, uh, rape of a minor under 13 years old, sexual battery of a child, video voyeurism, and it the list just keeps going and going and going and going. It gets pretty specific, but I don't want to like go yeah it's it's pretty disgusting but what makes this case go from horrible to unimaginable is the charge for conspiracy of mingling a harmful substance can you guess what that is
1: I didn't know that's how they (laughs) so in in a court of law that's how they that's how they explain somebody ingesting bodily fluids what's what is the charge
0: It's Conspiracy of Mingling a Harmful Substance.
1: Uh, no clue. Couldn't even tell you. All right, so... That's actually comical that they made it sound so nice.
0: (laughs) So, during the investigation, they found videos on Cynthia's phone of Dennis ejaculating onto pastries (laughs) and into energy drinks.
1: It's not not funny. It's not funny. Which Cynthia... It is a little funny.
0: ...then served to her junior high class.
1: No fucking yes,
0: yes. <laughs> so that's shit. like a major that's like 20-30 charges right there so now I understand why he right.
1: got so many charges yeah, yeah.
0: so uh, what a sick <laughs> fuck
1: yes. Holy
0: so this is yeah this has been coming over like I don't know every so often I'll, I'll see it and I'm like this is just mind boggling like who, who sits there and is like hey let me jack off on your pastries <laughs> So you can send him to your kids. Jesus. And this dude's a, I guess from what it's what it says that this guy, I guess he was like a lieutenant in a SWAT or some some shit for, for the parish down there in Louisiana. I guess the lie detector didn't catch him <laughs> yeah, in the uh, yeah. the police process. How was that psyche Val?
1: No. <laughs> Obviously not well
0: So uh, so she was recently sentenced to 41 years in prison as part of the as part of a plea deal, in exchange for testimony against her now ex husband they divorced so wow yeah wrap your head around. what a, that what a story there yeah thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> yes so but anyways so we're talking about the cheshire murders today and uh now that we got this out of the way it's time to uh buckle in a little bit yeah and uh
1: the, the, i think this story it, it hits home because we're from Connecticut right. so
0: it's like an hour I re- away
1: yeah and it's an hour away from us um, I I remember it vividly in high school early high school and um, it, you know we, we've all heard these horrific stories about the worst the scum of the earth right. the, like literally evil people and this story always hits me even more than like you know the Dahmers and all the, the other crazy stories I, right. this one really affects me and I think it was because it was so close to home I mean you raised daughters before yeah I, I have a daughter, and it, it's 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 just a rough story.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's it, you know when, when people are in their homes, they expect a certain amount of safety and sanctity, and you know, peace, and to have that all ripped out from underneath you yeah. is is unfathomable. But. Yeah, let's get into it. So, without further ado, this is chapter one of the Cheshire Murders. This episode of Criminalized Fuck contains descriptions of disturbing graphic violence, which may be offensive to some people. Listener discretion is advised. Fishers.
1: My name is Mary Lyons, I'm the Banking Center Manager. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The people are in a car outside the bank. She is getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told they will kill the children and the husband. Her name is Jennifer Pettit. Okay, she's still in the bank? Yes, she is. She said they drove her here. I'm trying to look and see where she's gone. She went outside, to I don't. Oh, wait, I see her walking out. She is petrified.
0: Forty minutes after this call, a little after 10 a.m. on July 23rd, 2007, the home located at 300 Sorghum Mill Drive in Cheshire, Connecticut, was engulfed in flames. And located inside were the bodies of 48-year-old Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her two daughters, 17-year-old Haley Pettit and 11-year-old Michaela Pettit. About 100 yards away from the home were two demolished police cruisers in the Pettit's Chrysler Pacifica, stolen just moments before by the two men who set the house ablaze. Jennifer's husband, William, had escaped from the basement where he was restrained at 9.50 a.m., feet tied together with an enormous gash on his head. By this point, William Pettit had lost roughly seven pints of blood and was barely clinging to life, but he managed to escape from the home and make his way to a neighbor's in a last-ditch effort to save his family. The Pettit's neighbor and family friend didn't recognize the man who approached and called out his name, bludgeoned beyond recognition. Just as the neighbor called 911, a police officer rushed in and yelled at the two men to get to cover. An ambulance was dispatched to William not yet knowing the fate of his wife and daughters. He will not know for some time as he was in and out of consciousness. The day before this tragedy, Sunday, July 22nd, began as any other Sunday. The family attended church in the morning, and in the afternoon, William went to play golf with his father as Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela stayed home to tend to their garden. Michaela was excited to prepare their Sunday dinner that evening bruschetta, and a pasta with homemade sauce of native tomatoes, olive oil, basil, and garlic, with homemade balsamic vinaigrette for the salad. Noticing she was a couple of ingredients short, Jennifer and Michaela went to the local stop-and-shop grocery store around 7 p.m., got the ingredients they needed, and headed back home. Dinner was a success. After dinner, William retired to the sunroom to read his medical journals, and Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela gathered to watch some TV. Around 11 p.m., with William asleep on the couch, Haley retired to her room, and Michaela joined Jennifer in her room and read a Harry Potter book. At 3 a.m., as William lay asleep on the couch, he was suddenly bludgeoned in the head five to six times with a baseball bat, splitting open a large gash and he lost consciousness. This is the beginning of the Pettit's seven-hour nightmare. How did this prominent family in the bedroom community of Cheshire end up being destroyed? William was an endocrinologist, specializing in diabetes treatment. Jennifer was a pediatric nurse and co-director of the health center at Cheshire Academy. Haley was a standout co-captain for the basketball and row teams, destined for Dartmouth in the fall, her father's alma mater, to follow in his footsteps to become a doctor, and Michaela affectionately known as K.K. Rosebud to her father, was a caring girl, an old soul, wise beyond her 11 years, whose favorite channel was the Food Network, and loved to cook and garden. The beginnings of this tragedy allegedly occurred the moment Jennifer and Michaela went to Stop and Shop, walking through the parking lot to their car. Unbeknownst to them, there was a man watching, monitoring their movement. One would think that it was Jennifer that caught his eye, beautiful and regal, looking well below her 48 years. But it was 11-year-old Michaela who 26-year-old Joshua Komisarzewski was intrigued by. An alleged pedophile and convicted robber, Komisarzewski had been convicted of 18 home invasions, each carrying a max of 10 years in prison. He should have been in jail at this very moment, but he made parole each and every time. The thing with Komisarzewski, he grew up in Cheshire and had lived a short distance away from the Pettits. He would later say that this was a random act, but it's plausible that he may have seen Michaela before, maybe riding her bike, possibly working in the garden. We will later learn that his fixation on Michaela was not only disturbing, but downright sickening. On the night of the 22nd, Kamisojevsky followed Jennifer and Michaela back to their home and called his friend, 44 year old Stephen Hayes, a 30 time arrestee for drugs and theft and told him to be ready. They had a job to do that night. You
1: know, the absolute picture-perfect family. Uh, father was a doctor, mother was a nurse, uh, two beautiful daughters, um, both outstanding students involved with sports, the church, the community, philanthropy. A yeah. white picket fence was a thing, it would be the Pettit family. Mm-hmm.
0: 100%. Uh, absolutely. You know, they'll go on to say, you know, both uh Commissar Jesky and Hayes, you know, like, oh this is totally random, you know, yada yada yada. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. Now, both of those guys were known for their robberies and what the whatnot. And, and all of their charges, none of them were violent crimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So why did this one escalate so much? It went from zero to hundred, like real quick. You know, Karmaz Karmazajewski. You know, he would he would walk into houses and it never stopped him before. You know, whether there were people there or not, no, he yeah. just went in. So what?
1: I I feel like he, well, I mean, later on we'll we'll get into that later. Is I feel like he he enjoyed the fact that people were in the house though, right? It made it more. It, it made it interesting. He he got too good at burglaries, to the point where he was wearing night vision goggles and all this other stuff. Like, yeah,
0: like he got off on that. Yeah, right. Loved it. So why, this family, on this night, did he walk into the house yeah. and physically harm William Pettit
1: at 26 years old? Right. Mm-hmm. 18 home invasions. Not at that point. Not one of them was violent.
0: Those are those are like charge conviction. You know yes. whatever. 18 home invasions. Could be more.
1: That we don't. Yeah, that we don't know of. Right. But, but none of them turned violent. Yeah. It was this sp- specific one.
0: So it raises a question. Why did this one, in particular, start off, right off the bat, as violent? Yep. And the only thing I can think of is that you take the father out. Now who's left? You has got the, the... The mom and the two daughters. The mom and the two daughters, right? Yes. So I believe that this particular crime was a crime driven by a perversion without a doubt you know rather than no, I, I believe the same thing let's go hit this house you know we'll get a freaking 100 bucks and call it a night this one was all right neither of them will admit it but Kamsarjeski was very intrigued by Michaela
1: from the moment he saw, from the moment her he her saw her, it wasn't yeah. the mom, it wasn't the, mm-hmm. the the uh, it wasn't Haley, it was Michaela. Yeah, that, that sparked his interest.
0: Yep, and uh, it, it gets a little bit more creepy as we go on. The, uh, I don't know, lack of a better word, connection that yep. he has with Michaela. No, I know? I understand what you're saying. So yeah, let's let's keep going. All right, chapter two. William and Jennifer first met in 1981, as William describes it. I met Jen at uh, Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh for med. She was a a new nurse, and I was the know-it-all third-year medical student. I was trying to correct Jen on how to take the blood pressure the correct way, since I had about three minutes of experience at that point. But it became clear. Pretty quickly that uh, she knew more about pediatrics and how to care for kids than I had ever known. They were married in 1985, and by October of 1989, Haley was born, followed by Michaela in November of 1995. In 1999, Jennifer had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, a degenerative disease of the central nervous system. Jennifer faced this diagnosis of bravery, refusing to let the disease dictate her life. Haley, 10 years old at the time, felt like she had to do something to help save her mother. She organized fundraiser after fundraiser and established Haley's hope. Through Haley's determination, she was able to raise $50,000 to help support treatment and find a cure for multiple sclerosis. Michaela had planned to take over the fundraising and create Michaela's miracle when Haley left for college. The Pettits celebrated their 22nd wedding anniversary in April of 2007, and in June, a month before the tragic event, they held a party for Haley's graduation from Miss Porter's school, an all-girls school in Farmington. Michaela was set to attend middle school at Chase Collegiate in the fall. This would never come to be, as two evil monsters would come and destroy this beautiful family and their loved ones in Cheshire as a whole would never be the same. Joshua Komer was adopted at birth to a family of prominence. His adoptive grandparents owned 65 acres in Cheshire, which would command a hefty price in today's market. His parents lived below their means, his father an electrician and his mother a librarian. They were both devout Baptists who brought in foster children throughout Commissar childhood. One foster child in particular sexually assaulted him on several occasions, and in turn, Commissar would sexually assault his adoptive sister. He was diagnosed with Oppositional Defiant Disorder, and his mother took him out of school and taught him at home. By 14, he was getting into trouble with some friends and would break into as many as eight houses a week throughout Cheshire. After the death of his grandfather, Joshua would attempt suicide and was sent to a psychiatric hospital. His parents didn't trust modern medicine, so when he left the hospital, he was sent to a religious camp, but he always found his way back to Cheshire. By 2002, Comercer Jeffsky was arrested for 18 home invasions, and he would often stay in the houses to listen to the occupants breathe while they slept, because stealing someone's security and sanctity was often better than stealing their possessions. For Stephen Hayes, he wasn't raised in luxury. The oldest of three boys to a single mother, Stephen was convicted as an adult at the age of 16. Between 1980 and 2007, Hayes was arrested roughly 30 times and spent most of those years in prison. In 2004, he was arrested for smashing a car window and stealing a purse. He served two years in prison and in 2006 was sent to the Stillman House. A halfway house for convicts and drug addicts who integrate back into society. This is where he met Kamisojevsky. The two became an odd pair Kamisojevsky, 26, and Hayes, 44. Neither had a history of violent crime, but they bonded over their pension for stealing and their love for drugs, specifically meth and crack cocaine. In April of 2007, Commissar Jeffsky was released from the halfway house with the stipulation he wear an ankle monitor for 90 days. Hayes was released a month later. They discussed plans of robbing houses now that they had their freedom. On or about July 20th, Commissar Jeffsky's ankle monitor was removed, and he and Hayes went right to work. They broke into a few houses on that Friday and Saturday night, but the robberies didn't satisfy their expectations. They had plans to rob drunks, leaving the bar on Sunday night. But plans changed once Commissar Jeffsky saw the mother and daughter walking through the stop-and-shop parking lot. So there's one thing The one thing about the Pettits. William and Jennifer raised absolute amazing children. Without a doubt. You know? Yeah. And when Jennifer found out that she had uh, MS, um, I think Haley was like 10 years old at the time. Yeah. And she just wanted to do what she could to help save her mother. Yeah. You know, so. It's sweet sentiment. Yeah. So she, she went out and did all these fundraisers. She started a, a Haley's Hope for uh, for the MS Walk. You know, she had a little team. I mean, it's just amazing that a 10-year-old and going into her pre-teens and whatnot could raise $50,000. Yeah, that, that, you know that it's I mean? not
1: like $4,000 for uh, you know, right. the heart association. Yeah. She's $50,000 for MS.
0: Yeah. Which is an amazing feat that she was solely responsible for. Yeah. It. You know, that's that's just And, and the wow. her
1: um the kids at her school didn't even know about this. Right. Like, she didn't brag, she didn't mm-hmm. talk about it. She was very like private with this whole thing, too. Right. It was all all out of love. Mm-hmm. It was it wasn't for anything else. Right. So we get to finally, you know, hear more about Joshua and Stephen, yeah, or Karmasar uh... <laughs> <Commissar Jeffsky.
0: laughs>
1: fuck his name, all right. So we get to know of, about you know Stephen Hayes and Karmasar Jeski, Joshua. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he probably gets it right, and then he says Joshua. Joshua.
1: Um. Uh. Yeah. So, so we get to deep dive more on Stephen Hayes and Kommissar Jevsky. Uh, you know, two broken individuals they meet at the halfway house, and uh, both of them instantly click. Uh, they they actually called Stephen Hayes Mr. N.A. Oh, right. Really? Yeah, because he was uh, he, he he's been in N.A. treatment for so long that he knew the book back and forth. Yeah, when you smoke crack for 30 years, uh, you, you might not, have... yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't even need to finish all the steps, you just you know, you can just read the book at that point,
0: yeah. Um, like, I can name you every every stat of the Philadelphia Eagles, but that doesn't make me a football player. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: yeah. Also, uh, rough childhood for Karma Sojewski. Uh You know, molested... Would molest his adopted sister. Uh, breaking in at houses at 14. It just, just an all-around bad person yeah. at this point in his life.
0: But yeah, if you talk to, like, any of his, like, drug counselors or parole officers or whatever, they are all say, oh, he's... Great guy, yeah. you
1: know. Oh, he was a master manipulator. Yeah. At the end of the day, a uh, very well spoken, very like could could write very well. Um. Where Stephen Hayes, you know, <laughs> two two younger brothers was the oldest of them. Uh, single mom, poor family. Uh, you know, he, he It seemed like he just started robbing to rob. Yeah. Where, I think, ja, uh, Karmasajewski was a. He got off on, uh, you know, committing crimes and, and seeing if he could get away with it. Yeah, where... he
0: did it more of a, of like a satisfaction, like a pleasure. Yeah. He... Whereas Hayes is necessity. Yeah,
1: a need a need to live. Yeah. yeah for him, Until like, you know, it, it speaks a lot about to too, uh, standing over people while they were sleeping in his bed. After like, the the man was so good at breaking in that he mm-hmm. he didn't just steal stuff and leave. He would hang around. You know, yeah. and, and violate your, your security.
0: You know because who else used to do that? Who? Richard Ramirez.
1: He would hang around?
0: Yeah. After Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's how we started off. Breaking into people's houses. Yeah, before the killings. Right. Yep. He would do it during the daytime, at nighttime, people were home. Just just because he could. Just because he could. Just yep. walk in
1: you I mean you have to be skilled at that point right to and he would he would successfully burglarize them too so he was taking money he was he was taking objects and then just hanging around listening to them sleep that terrifies me that's a terrifying thing to, to to hear um and then you know the ankle monitoring coming off in july and them just going right to work yeah they've been they they've been hanging out talking about this for so long mm-hmm. and uh it you know they, they plan this weekend right you know Friday Saturday Sunday Yep.
0: yeah His ankle monitor comes off in the afternoon, and that night they're...
1: And then by Sunday, they commit arguably the worst crime you can commit in, you know, history. Mm -hmm.
0: So, once again, just to warn you, there's uh, some graphic information coming up, so be prepared. Chapter 3. After Commissar Jeffsky spoke to Hayes about the change in plans, Joshua went home to care for his daughter. Hayes would text repeatedly about the when and the what. A portion of the text messages went as follows. Hayes, I'm chopping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. We still on? Commissar Jeffsky, yes. Hayes, soon? Commissar Jeffsky, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Hayes. Dude, the horses want to get loose. They met later in the evening back at the stop and shop in Cheshire where Karmisarjewski saw Jennifer and Michaela earlier that evening. They went to the Sports Rock USA in Bristol for a few beers and then went to Walmart to buy an airsoft gun and some zip ties. The plan was to use the airsoft gun to threaten the family and then restrain them as they ransacked the house. They parked their car in a side street and walked to 300 Sorghum Hill Drive. The house was dark, other than a light coming from the sunroom. There they saw William Pettit sleeping on the couch. Commissar Jasky broke in through the basement while Hayes waited outside. Within a few minutes at 3 a.m., Hayes saw Kamasarjewski beating William in the head with a bat that he found in the basement. This was not the original plan. Kamasarjewski let Hayes in through the back door. William, now coming to, was restrained by the wrists and ankles and recalls one of the men say, if he moves, shoot him. The two men went upstairs and went into Haley's room and restrained her then went into Jennifer's room, where she and Michaela were sleeping. They woke them up, and Commissar Jeffsky brought Michaela to her room while Hayes restrained Jennifer. They all had pillowcases put over their heads, and Jennifer and the girls were tied spread out to their bedposts. Commissar Jeffsky and Hayes then went about the house looking for valuables. With no luck finding anything, they looked through Jennifer's purse and found a bank book that showed $40,000 in the bank. They decided that they would wait until the bank opened in the morning and would have Jennifer withdraw $15,000. They moved William to the basement and tied him to a post. It was quickly becoming evident that Commissar had other things on his mind. Hayes stated later that Commissar kept disappearing, only to be found in Michaela's room, talking to her. He also noticed that the gloves he was wearing had torn and became fearful that he was leaving his fingerprints everywhere suggesting to Commissar that they should burn the house down when they left to eliminate any evidence. Hayes found some bottles in the basement and went to the gas station to fill the bottles with gas. On his way back to the house, he got lost and tried calling Commissar for directions, but he didn't answer. When he finally returned, he once again found Commissar Jeffsky in Michaela's room. Around 8.30 a.m., They removed the restraints from Jennifer and told her that they wanted the money from the bank and if she did as they asked, they would leave without hurting anyone. At 9 a.m., Hayes and Jennifer left for the bank. Inside the bank, Jennifer explained that her family was being held captive and she needed $15,000 withdrawn from her account, but she didn't have her bank book or her identification. The manager of the bank was able to free up $11,000, seeing the distress Jennifer was in. As she was leaving, the manager called the police. There was an officer in the vicinity of the Pettit's home when the call came in, and he proceeded to the house, but was called off. He witnessed Hayes and Jennifer returning to the house. Police set up a perimeter out of sight of the house and waited for further instruction. Inside, Jennifer was restrained again, and Commissar Jeffsky told Hayes that there was a problem. While Jennifer and Hayes were gone, Commissar Jeske had performed oral sex on Michaela and then sodomized her. He took pictures and video of the acts on his cell phone and had pictures of Michaela and Haley's breasts and vaginal areas. He told Hayes that he needed to keep things square, suggesting that he now needs to rape Jennifer. Hayes grabbed Jennifer and began raping her on the living room floor both anally and vaginally. William, who was in and out of consciousness throughout the ordeal, heard the assault on Jennifer. Screened from the basement to which Comisar Jeffsky replied don't worry it'll all be over in a couple minutes William who by now lost about seven pints of blood felt a sudden jolt of adrenaline it broke free from the post he contemplated going up the stairs but remembered that they had a gun and felt if he went up there they would shoot everyone he instead exited out the basement with his feet still restrained and struggled his way to the neighbors to get help Commissar Jeffsky saw William escaping and told Hayes. Hayes became enraged and strangled Jennifer to death. It is believed that Hayes continued to rape Jennifer's body post-mortem. The men then grabbed the bottles of gasoline and started spreading it around the house and on Jennifer's body. Both men blamed the other for pouring the gas in the girls' bedrooms and on the girls themselves, as well as who lit the match to ignite it. Kamisarzewski and Hayes exited the house and jumped into the Pettit's Chrysler Pacifica, with Kamisarzewski driving. They backed down the driveway as an unmarked police car blocked its path. The men plowed through the car, put it in drive, and sped down the road for about a hundred yards. Two police cars blocked the road, and they drove directly into them, disabling the Pacifica. Both Kamisarzewski and Hayes were arrested on the spot. With the house engulfed in flames, it would be some time before authorities would see the carnage inside. Jennifer was burned so bad, she had to be identified by dental records. Haley had broken her restraints, but was found at the top of the stairs with third and fourth degree burns on her legs. Michaela was found in her room, her hands still bound to the bedposts and her lower body hanging off of the bed. Haley and Michaela had died from smoke inhalation and a medical examiner couldn't verify if their burns were from before or after their death. William was transported to the hospital with severe head trauma and loss of blood, barely clinging to life. He spent four days in the hospital and was released.
1: Going back to what I said is, like, this story really affects me different than a lot of the criminal stories that I've heard, um... Tragic, and I couldn't imagine what that entire family goes is going through through that situation. Uh, you know, uh, William Jarris, which is Josh's previous uh defensive attorney on all his other 18 home evasions before that, uh, said he was a genius with a photographic memory and could count every burglar he had, he knew every denomination of money that he took. Um, and he would break into state troopers' houses, and he, he would also do you know, he would listen to state troopers. Because he think he because he could that takes a lot of balls, and he the that defensive attorney told a judge that this man needs to be watched, mm-hmm. and the fact that he you know he slipped through the cracks so many times on parole, it, it's it's just sad. It, you know we have the perfect system, but it's flawed in in, right. in the same way.
0: Yeah, and like going back to the the other chapter is Commissar Jeffsky shouldn't even have been out on parole. No because there was a breakdown in communication between the Department of Corrections and the parole board there was recommendations that this man doesn't belong anywhere on the streets yeah. you know he needs to be either in prison or in a psychiatric hospital yeah you know and, what I mean?
1: and these are the actual parole officers telling you know the court this and it mm-hmm. just it failed um the the thing that really like I can't get over is the timeline of the police you know, interaction is at 921, the initial call from 911 comes in from the bank. Mm -hmm. And the 911 caller, uh, the 911 uh, operator put the banker on hold. You know, Uh, I I know that, you know, she, Jennifer said that they were being nice, but still at that point that's a big call to come in. That's not your everyday call that you're getting.
0: And the actual, the the call got dropped.
1: How many times? At one point, I think just it, once. I think it got dropped once. Yep.
0: So they actually had to call back.
1: Uh, so yeah, nine twenty-one. That call comes in. At nine fifty-six a.m., the two suspects two suspects seen entering Chrysler Pacifica. So they 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 were already on their way out at that point. Mm. So for thirty-five minutes, the police were already like for thirty of those minutes, the police were already on scene, setting up their perimeter. Right. You know, nobody decided to go in knock on the door and I I get there's like protocol procedure and all that stuff but
0: I can see it two ways it's I can see it from the family's aspect is like you know if you would have done something sooner we'd still have our family correct you know on the other side of it up to that point other than the assault on William the violence hasn't escalated you know what I mean And like you said, the caller, you know, the 911 caller said that Jennifer said they were being nice. You know, they just want the money and they'll leave. So I can see that aspect of it for the police where they're just like, you know what? At this point, nothing's really drastic happening. This is a hostage quote unquote situation. Let's just set up a perimeter, you know, assess the situation. Now in that 30 minutes. It went from zero to a hundred.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's it's kind of crazy that all that happened. I mean, the raping of Jennifer, the strangulation of Jennifer, and when they poured gas and lit the fire, all within that thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you can see some desperation with them there, but it it just sucks that they were right outside and right. and nothing came in. And the
0: and the the fire, the the burning of the house, was premeditated, obviously, because yeah. you know uh, Hayes went and. What the gasoline?
1: Yeah, he went in the garage, picked the gasoline tanks before he went to the bank with yeah Jennifer. Yep, uh, Mister Pettit too. It's it's like you know put up a hell of a fight for being bludgeoned in the head with a baseball bat. Yeah, Uh I just I feel so bad for him because coming as as a father like you feel like you could do more or, or these little little things in different situations and stuff like that and I, I know he probably feels guilty for going out the back and running to the neighbors and not going he, I mean he said it in an interview that he you know maybe if I could have got up went up the upstairs instead of going out the bulkhead that I, I could have did something he was completely incoherent at that point
0: point. Right. and uh, and, uh it, it took him everything he had just to get to the neighbor's house if he made it upstairs he would have been killed. Yeah. He without a doubt.
1: He wasn't going to be able to take on two, you no. know, individuals in the no. state that he was.
0: Especially at that stage uh, on their escalation of the violence, he he would have been killed. And, you know, I could see, you know, his his thinking at that point is like, if I go upstairs, I'm dying. I'll be dead. Yeah. If I can get out this back, get to my neighbor. Call the police. Call the police. You know, get them here and save my family. Like, I can totally...
1: And, and hearing... What was going up, up on upstairs mm. with your wife, and not climbing up those stairs instead of going like that took? That, you could say that took way more guts yeah. than anything, because mm-hmm. he knew he, he couldn't save her by if he wouldn't. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a horrible situation.
0: So I mentioned before how uh, uh interest in Michaela would escalate. Yeah. You know, after when when they first when they first broke in, you know, they they took care of uh, William and they go upstairs. Instantly. And I, I believe Hayes says this, that they divvied up responsibility.
1: Yep. Yeah, Joshua clearly he was like, I'll take the eleven year old. I'll take care of, yep, I'll take without care a doubt.
0: Life. Yeah. Yep. So right off the bat, boom. And that's why I'm saying this is a this is a crime of perversion rather than the typical Let's go get a home, home of vision that he's yeah. Looking. Let's get some money and some friggin jewelry and get the hell out of here. Yep. You know what I mean?
1: They they played that card well though mm-hmm. in you know their upcoming trials.
0: Yeah, but because because he no had way. he had actually said to Jeffsky Jeffsky has said in his uh confession in his interrogation that you know when he saw the the house quote unquote when he saw Michaela. He envisioned himself living there, yep. like being there.
1: Well, he used to drive his girlfriend around, you know, beautiful homes in Cheshire, and say, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you this home. I'm right. gonna get you this stuff," which, you know, his his girlfriend at that time looked like a 12 year old girl. Yeah. Yep. So.
0: I believe she was 16 when they started dating. Yeah. He was in his 20s.
1: Yep. And and his.
0: The girlfriend's dad even said,
1: "I I think you're a pedophile." Yeah, and he didn't even like he didn't even try to defend himself. Right. Too. He's like, point.
0: "Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way." Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Also, yeah. too, the
1: the bank teller, like, why? I I'm, I know I'm sure this is the bank. You know, it, I think the bank teller told the manager. The manager came out and talked to Jennifer. Yeah. And I'm sure this is the first time that that's ever happened to her. So obviously, you know, you're not gonna you know, react. You know, like this is an everyday thing. Right. But why did nobody keep her there? And I know she went to go run to call the police, and and Jennifer kind of bolted out the door. Yeah. But that there's like, oh, there's so many little situations where yeah. this could have changed, at least maybe yeah. saved one or two lives. Mm-hmm. You know, just just not Mister Pettit. Yeah, right. It's it's so sad.
0: We'll touch a little bit on what happened to them after, and uh, what William has uh, has done since then. Chapter four. After their arrest, both men confessed to the crimes, but pointed the finger at the other for being the mastermind. They were both charged and convicted for the rapes and murders of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela Pettit. Hayes was the only one who was convicted of arson, because he was the one caught in surveillance camera purchasing the gasoline. They were sentenced to death for these horrendous crimes, but this sentence was later commuted to life in prison after Connecticut abolished the death penalty. In 2007, letters written by Hayes to a woman in North Carolina were intercepted by the Connecticut Department of Corrections. In the letters, Hayes confesses to have murdered 17 women between the 1980s and 2007. In one confession, Hayes writes, I picked up this drunk chick hitchhiking. He goes on to say he kept her tied to his bed for an entire weekend. I got most of it on tape. 16 hours and 2 CDs by far the best snuff film ever created. There were also claims in these letters that all of his victims were in the age range of 14 to 25 and he got pleasure from their pain and emotional abuse and that he has trophies from all these women. He writes, The 17 kill trophies meant the most to me. Each trophy was one of a kind and completely specific to each victim. Turns out these trophies were sneakers as Hayes had a foot fetish. During the initial investigation for the Cheshire murders, police searching Hayes' home found several pairs of women's sneakers. However, none of these alleged confessions were proven true. One last eerie confession in the letters may have shown who was truly responsible for the escalation from home invasion to murder. As Hayes writes, I've searched my whole life for someone who could embrace and had the capacity for evil as I possess. I thought I finally found that in Josh. But events show that Josh, while he had the proper evil intent, lacked in most serious aspects, commitment and control. During the trials, William fought feverishly for the death penalty. He sat through every single moment of the trials, except for when the medical examiner was discussing the sexual abuse and injuries. The trial was so graphic, so intense, jury members were given grief counseling after having to sit through all of the testimony, crime scene evidence, autopsy evidence, and even the pictures and videos from Commissar Jeffsky's phone. Located where the pet at home once stood, now bears a memorial garden to keep the memory of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela alive. William is now remarried and has a son. He gave up his practice and is now a Connecticut State Representative and is president of the Pettit Family Foundation, founded in 2008, which funds are given to foster the education of young people, especially women in the sciences, to improve the lives of those affected by chronic illness, and to support the efforts to help and protect those affected by violence in honor of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela. The Foundation's mantra is Michaela's favorite saying, You must be the change you wish to see in the world. He also established Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Memorial MS Scholarship, which was set up by the Pettit and Hawke families to honor Haley and Michaela, who both worked feverishly to raise funds for their mother Jennifer and those affected by multiple sclerosis. It is run by a committee from the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, Connecticut chapter. If you would like to donate to the Pettit Family Foundation or Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Memorial MS Scholarship, you can follow the links in the description.